you can open up and and share just what you're seeing in the industry today due to the COVID disruption. William, what we're seeing today is something completely unprecedented. You know, I've been in the travel industry since the late 90s, and I've never, ever seen anything like this. So in our case, I'm currently working as a C-level executive in in a hotel company. We've closed down all of our operations, which means 100% of our 120 hotels. Um, This is something unheard of. We are seeing all the airlines in the world almost grounded which is something, you know, again, unheard of. All the cruise lines completely moored. The travel world has come to a complete standstill. So I participate in some of the think tanks that the World Travel and Tourism Council organizes. I was discussing with them what this is going to be for the industry. In the short term, we're looking at losing 75 million jobs in the travel and tourism industry. Uh, just think about the impact that this will have in many societies. The economic loss, it's difficult to gauge, but it's some numbers are pointing to over 2 trillion with a T figure, which is difficult to understand what this is. In countries where uh, tourism and travel uh, plays a substantial role within GDP, think about Greece, Italy, France, Spain, or even the US, this is going to make a dent in all of those economies. I used to be vice president of the World Tourism Organization, and I'm still invited to some of the think tanks. The other day, uh, we were looking at some numbers with them, and actually, the volumes of travelers, of people, are probably going to slide back eight years to the volumes that we had in 2012, roughly. And all of this has happened in almost no time. It is true that we knew about the virus that had started in China towards the end of the year, around the Western Christmas period. But there was, you know, kind of a blur and it was kind of a China thing. No one really was paying too much attention until really it hit Italy and then things became serious. And since the end of February, you know, to the second, third week of March, literally in three weeks, we saw over 180 countries in the world taking extreme measures at various various degrees, but all of them being extreme, some of them closing completely their borders. So this is something some people usually reference crisis or situations like this to wars or epidemics in the past. This is something that is completely unprecedented. So we're all kind of chartering uncharted waters, which makes it especially difficult. I was in a call earlier today with PricewaterhouseCoopers trying to see if we can put in place a medical passport for COVID-19 to make that a standard in Europe for the outgoing and and inbound countries. So again, what we are seeing is something completely new, which is going to require tremendous efforts to get back on track. But I'm certain that we will get back on track. The problem is in how long will that take? Yeah. And so maybe looking specifically at demand then and how demand will change. So what is your outlook on occupancy for the industry, say 2021 or 18 months time? Do you think we can get back to levels of 60, 65% occupancy in 18 months? I hope so. And I wish so, but it's difficult to say. So if we look at it, you know, from a half empty or half full bottle, the approach is the following. Q2 is completely wiped out. So we've lost all of the business for Q2. It is true that we were hit by the virus at the start of March or around the start of March. Then all of the figures, all of the occupancy rates went through their drains quite quickly. As a company, we are considering now that May is completely lost. We have closed sales, actually. We're not accepting any bookings. And most of the countries are in, not even hotel chains, I'm talking about countries and whole destinations are operating in the same manner. 
June, it remains to be seen. We're revising these policies and these sales activity on a day-by-day basis. But the interesting piece is, is when you look into Q3, the numbers are still pretty stable. And by stable, I mean we haven't seen a massive wash of business going away just yet. It is true that the wash that we saw in Q2 came kind of of in waves, in different waves, as the virus was hitting different countries and moving from the east to the west. But Q3, surprisingly, in our books and talking with colleagues from companies all over the world, they are still pretty stable. We have seen some erosion of the occupancy rates. In our case, we're seeing, you know, around 30% occupancy rates for July and, and August and so forth, which is a relatively good number because we haven't lost a lot of the bookings that we already had. Now, if you compare it with previous year, it's a bad number because we should be at a higher mark by now. It is true. But if you consider that we've been now five, six weeks, seven weeks into the crisis, we haven't seen a massive erosion just yet. It doesn't mean that it won't happen later on. It might happen later on, but it hasn't yet happened, which gives kind of a of a ray of, of hope still. If we look at Q4, we're actually seeing positive pickup. Pickup is you know, when we are seeing new business, you know, new business cancellations, the net-net is the pickup, and that's positive for Q4. We're seeing, you know, actually pretty good numbers for Mexico. We're seeing numbers come back into the Canary Islands, which is an important destination for Europeans. So by that standard, there should be some hope. Now, to your question, how long is it going to take us, I think, to regain pre-crisis levels? It will probably take 24 months since the time the virus has been declared as controlled, either because there's a vaccine in place or because the authorities decide or announce that you know, things are now under control and, and the epidemic is, is controlled and so forth. Uh, but I think it will take time to recover. Another important aspect we need to look at is how things have changed through time. Take 9-11. 9-11 was a massive change or a massive impact for travel and tourism and for society in general, but we're talking about travel today. It took a long time to recover from that tragic uh, event until things came back to normal. You know, the different terrible attacks that we've seen happen through time in the 20 years that have passed, society and travel as an industry has been able to recover faster and faster. It doesn't mean that the events are not tragic. A life is a life. Terrorism is, is always a terrible thing to happen. But if we look at the Paris events a few years back, which were, you know, massive attacks, hundreds of people killed in the streets. We saw Paris come back in two, three, four weeks later. We've seen the same in Turkey. So terrorism, unfortunately, has become the new normal. Now, this is a new event. It's an epidemic, and it's a virus hitting into society. It will take time to people to adapt and define the new norms and the new standards that need to be followed and observed. But eventually, we will get back to, to normal life, to put it that way. How have you changed your marketing strategy and spend during this time, you've given that what you've just said about demand, how are you thinking about changing that marketing spend? In two ways. First of all, we've stopped completely the marketing, the, non the so-called non-performance marketing. We have a very clear separation between performance and non-performance. The non-performance has been stopped because we wanted to understand, because we saw that things were deteriorating very, very fast. So we wanted to see where the bottom is. We're not yet seeing the bottom, but at least uh, things are starting to calm down a bit from a medical perspective. We're going to continue doing campaigns, but we're changing the tone, the messaging, the copy, even the platforms in which we are communicating. So that's one thing that we've changed. On the marketing spend, the more performance marketing, the distribution marketing, if you will, we've changed, for example, the CPC models to pure uh, success-based models meaning we are not doing any campaigns on Google for which we pay for a CPC that then we need to track 
if it becomes a conversion, which eventually becomes a stay, so we can deduct the ROI from that campaign or that click specifically and, and see how efficient or inefficient it is. We've shut down completely that and we have activated risk-free bookings, which means we only pay not at the time of booking, but post-stay. So the different partners with whom we work, you know, MetaSearch like Google Hotel Ads or Skyscanner or even some affiliation platforms were saying, listen, continue selling. We're happy for you to sell, but we won't be paying you until the class, the customer has checked out, which puts us in a very comfortable position because it's risk-free. We don't want to kill the business that's coming in. You know, those bookings I was mentioning for Q4, we want to stimulate that demand as much as we can, but in a logical and kind of a smart way. So those meta search engines, Google, both, the, I guess you assume the flights as well as the hotels, they've been pretty flexible in, in adapting their model in that sense. Well, they already had these models in place, like the commission uh, program for Google Hotel Ads that was launched a few years back. Uh, some of them have adapted quickly to uh, kind of cater or bring new solutions in this space. There's an, another interesting aspect. I was looking yesterday at overall CPC costs and so forth. And for our perimeter, meaning the markets in which we operate and we advertise and the audiences to, to which we advertise, the CPC costs have plummeted over 60% in the last four weeks, uh, which is logical because there's less people advertising, so there's less pressure on the auction. And as a result, that traffic is cheaper. Now I'm saying that between quotation marks, which probably opens an opportunity to generate new bookings. But And we will probably be doing that in the short term. So we move to a completely risk-free model but we might be coming back to the CPC. And even though we know that some of the reservations that will be made might be canceled down the line because of the, the volatility is almost 100%, but we prefer to stimulate bookings and receive those bookings in order to keep you know, the, the wheel turning and, and the hope turning and try to find the, the, normal, the new normal as soon as possible. Right. So CPMs and CPCs have both been declining, but also the, con the conversion is still pretty weak as well because people are not actually buying because they're uncertain, but there is that potential to spend on cheaper traffic to potentially have that booking. There is overall much less traffic, which is a problem. Uh, the only good side is that the traffic that there is is slightly cheaper. Uh, we're also changing the way we measure success. So from a pure complete booking, which is the traditional way of really measuring a conversion rate, we're looking at, in some cases at micro conversions. So for example, we're trying to direct as much traffic as we can to our contact centers. We've got contact centers in the Americas and in, in Europe, and we're seeing extraordinary results from voice interaction, which is obviously more expensive, but we also are seeing higher ticket prices and better ability to convert because in these times of uncertainty, people want to know things. They ask a lot of questions, which maybe they could be answered on the web, but if there's a human at the other end of the line, people prefer to interact with the human. So we're considering a conversion, uh, a call that has been provoked by an original click and not necessarily a conversion with a credit card on the website. So we see that as already one factor of converting, the fact that the client, either we are calling them back or he's or she is calling us to our contact center. So we are altering a bit our measures to make sure that we capture everything possible out there. How do you think this COVID disruption will change the bargaining power in that travel value chain? Well. I'm certain about one thing, which is intermediators in general and OTAs in particular are going to gain power. They're going to be on the, on the long side of the stick. 
to put it in those terms. We've seen these over and over again since 9-11, which at the time OTAs were starting really to take off. You know, Expedia was Expedia was founded five years before that, but it's starting to gain significant share and significant volumes, especially in the US. It really took off uh, after 9-11 because hotels were starving for business. So were airlines, everyone was starving for business. In the different crises that we've seen since then, the financial crisis, the different epidemics like the swine flu and SARS and so forth, always, always, in all cases, intermediaries and OTAs specifically have been able to gain share. And I think that this time around, it will be even more acute because the crisis is being more acute. And the reason behind that is that the OTAs have faster ability to adapt for this. These are technology companies deploying their resource and their know-how into marketing. They don't own assets. They just have people and servers, to put it that way. So they can much, much faster adapt to the new normal versus hotels, especially in a world where you need to consider that mice, uh, meetings, incentives, congresses, and expositions are going to disappear completely. For some hotels, mice, that segment alone might represent 30, 40%. If you go to Vegas, it's even higher, right? You take gambling and mice and that's Vegas, basically. So with that disappearing completely, I'm certain that mice is going to disappear for at least 18 months. Then the FIT, the foreign individual traveler or the groups are going to become particularly relevant. And then, so OTAs are gaining already a specific weight within the mix and the ecosystem is completely, has gone completely dark and the only lights are the OTAs or the two operators. And as a result, everyone is going to be begging for their business. Do you think the OTAs would be able to charge a higher take rate for that or where the hotels are going to be really pushing that business? That's a great question. The short answer is yes. If you have more power, you should be able to charge more, right? It's, it's kind of a basic supply and demand. Hotels and airlines, so suppliers in general, have been fighting against OTAs. And there's a frenemy feeling, right? I, I used to work at Expedia, and I remember uh, airline executives saying, you're like a drug dealer. You know, we don't like you, but we love you. It's like, okay, you know, I don't sell drugs. <laughs> I, I work for an OTA, a leading OTA, but I get your point because you need me, but you don't like me because you don't want to need me. But again, you need to fill your planes. And as a result, you need to call me, right? <laughs> so that was an interesting time. So now it's, it's the same thing is going to happen. Hotels are far behind airlines in industry intermediation for different reasons that we can cover if you want. But I would say that hotels are 10, 15 years behind. As a result, they're even more dependent than airlines are for distribution. So I don't want to get into, into technical aspects, but all of the OTAs in the world are always giving you increased visibility, you know, MODs, member-only discounts, the Genius program, whatever you call it. At the end of the day is the same game, is give me more commission and I'll give you more business because I give you increased visibility and increased merchandising and increased. So that is going to become especially acute now. And as a result, the take rate, the effective take rate, which is what really matters, not the contract commission, but the take, the effective one will go up for sure. Can you just elaborate more on what you mentioned between hotels being 10, 15 years behind the airline industry and, and what that means from a value chain and disintermediation perspective? Absolutely. So uh, this is my personal experience. So I, I don't want to say that this is the truth, but uh, what I've seen, I started working at an airline in the late 90s, which was still owned by the government, Iberia Airlines. Airlines in many cases were still owned by governments uh, in Europe. And in some cases, governments still have a significant stake like Air France or, or others, right? Why do I say this? Well, because it's a very 19th century or 20th century approach when governments were holding the key assets of a country. 
and airlines were considered that. Liberalization came along, different phases earlier in the US, later in, in Europe, and the skies were open, and something happened. The magic happened, the LCC model, the low-cost carrier model came along. Think about Southwest in the US, think about EasyJet or Ryanair in Europe, and that revolutioned completely the airline space and, and air travel and travel in general. Why did that happen? Well, because they changed the rule of the games upside down. Travel had always been very, very intermediated. You had the travel agencies, the wholesalers, the tour operators, the incoming, so forth. In the airline world, you would have the GDS, the global distribution systems, and the travel agencies selling the tickets, and airline companies would have a beautiful selling ticketing offices in the center of the cities in the most premium locations. Some of them still have, if you go to London, to the West End, you see some of the Asian carriers with beautiful offices in, in very premium locations uh, because the cost structure could allow that. I remember my days when um, for a business class ticket, you would get a 10% commission. That's unheard of today on a ticket that doesn't happen. You know, you don't get not even a 1%. And that was the public. So any agent in the world selling for that airline, if you had the plates and you sold a C, if you know a full ticket, you would get a 10%. All of that changed. So I don't want to take too long on this, but the point is airlines had to reinvent themselves because the rules of the games changed completely from distribution to business model, to fuel costs, to crew costs. And as a result, they developed the skills and capacities to sell much more through the web. Think about EasyJet when the first flights went onto the air. They painted literally the aircraft with the phone, with a telephone number that you needed to call to make the booking. And that was the only way to book. There was no availability on the GDS or the, or the travel agency. You would have to call that orange painted phone. So as a result, all of the airlines followed suit. The, the so-called traditional carriers, the flag carriers or legacy carriers, had to follow that because the, the pressure they were getting from the LCCs, from the low cost, was so extreme that they had to become low cost themselves, even though they were legacy carriers. As a result, they developed great websites. They developed a very aggressive pricing strategy, which is not as important, but even more important than having a beautiful website. So they were trying to fight Expedia, which had a very beautiful website and a very good brand. And American Airlines, it took them a while to develop a website that was as usable, as beautiful, as nice like Expedia, but then they started breaking the price parity, the so-called price parity agreements and so forth. And everyone now understands that if you want to get the absolute cheapest fare for an airline, you should go to the, to the airline website, or at least in many countries or in many cases, that is the case. Hotels are far behind from this perspective. Hotels are still heavily intermediated. You know, many companies like the one at which I'm working now, we're still reliant, not dependent, but reliant on great partnerships with tour operators, with uh, OTAs and so forth. And we haven't breaking the mold like the airlines did in the past. Also because the business dynamics are different. But you get the point. In the same way that pricing, for example, airlines have been very aggressive in revenue management for the last 30 years. As a result of all these changes that happened on that ecosystem, they were obliged to charge a different fee or a different fare for every single seat on the plane. And everyone understands that, and no one complains. We know that the price is volatile and they're constantly adjusting. Hotels are starting to price in the same way, especially city hotels like London, New York, and the Chicago's of the world. But there's still you know, a, long, a long way to, to get there. That's why I was saying that we are behind in many aspects versus airlines in the hotel industry. What do you think is preventing that shift what is the barrier to that shift in, in hotels only more of the distribution? First of all is market dynamics, the acceptance of the demand side. So again, on an airline, everyone understands that they might have paid a different ticket. If you book very far in advance with no luggage and this and this and that, the non-refundable, and you get a very cheap fare. If you, on the other hand, 
book very last minute, you know, you're going to get, you know, grilled and you're going to have to pay a very high fare and so forth. People are not ready or not yet thinking on that way for hotels. That's one thing. The second thing is that the inability of the hotels to really move faster. Even though technology has become cheaper and it's more available, think about uh, Moore's Law, the double capacity that we get every 18 months at at half the price. That's a good illustration, but also the democratization of that technology, you know, the booking engines, the algorithms that in the past really made the modes that Expedia or Booking.com had, those are no longer there. Or if they are there, they're smaller than they were in the past. But still, hotels are lagging behind in putting those things into work. Then you have the regulation component, price parity, which is a big topic in, in Europe especially, not as big in the US. This is still a problem. Actually, even though some governments have legislated this, many hotels are still not able or not willing to break these parity clauses, which are no longer legal, but they still de facto exist, which play a pivotal role, especially when you put the metas as a light that is really amplifying this message. And by this, I mean the different prices that you get for the exact same room for the exact same date on the exact same hotel, right? So those are basically the reasons behind it, I would say. And also there's an interesting component, which is the hotelier's mind and the, and the uniform system of accounts, which is kind of the general accounting rules that get used in, in the Anglo-Saxon world for hotels accounting. One thing is commission and the other thing is marketing. So in many cases, when you're doing the budget for the year, you tell the CFO, you know, I'm going to need $3 million of, for marketing this year. Fine. It gets approved and everyone starts burning that budget throughout the year. If it's June and you've exhausted those $3 million, you're going to have a hard time explaining why you need more. In many cases, the hotel chains are considering their website sales as SEM marketing because there's the marketing name in there. And that is really a commission or you should consider it a commission when you compare it with alternative channels like Booking and Expedia. But the CFO doesn't ask at the beginning of the year, how much are you going to spend on Expedia or Booking commissions? You don't know. You know, the more they sell, the higher the commission is going to be. But no one really cares about that. And that's what I mean by the difference between the marketing cost versus the distribution cost. And that comes not only from the mind, but also from the way the accounting is built in many cases. And that might seem as a simple thing, but it really prevents a lot direct distribution from really getting up to par with distribution. When you think about it, you should be pushing your own sales and your own distribution. First of all, if it's more profitable because of logical terms, because the GOP is going to be higher at the end of the year, but also because it gives you a wealth of information that the intermediation, in general, the intermediaries do not give you. You know, there's an interesting fact that I realized when I started working for hotels about two years ago, having been on distribution and Google in the past, uh, which is the client spends maybe, you know, 30 minutes, 30 seconds or three hours on the website where they book the hotel, right? They complete the transaction, they give the name, the credit card, and that's it. But then that very traveler in some cases comes to our property. And in some cases, it stays with us two weeks. We have a lot of longer stays for two weeks. And the minute that client walks out, we never got the email address. Just think about it, right? Think, this is just, it's, it's Crazy. insane. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. The email address, which is probably the most important component from an individual today, a valid email address, more important than a passport, at least for marketing purposes. It's something that is absolutely core and nuclear for an OTA. 
but the hotel doesn't really pay that much attention. And even though the client has been and has interacted with hotel manager, we sometimes know our clients by name and we see the children grow because they come every year, but we never took the time to collect those pivotal pieces of information like the email address to address them and, and talk to them on a one-to-one basis. Again, this is an anecdote, but it represents the lack of mentality that hotels and suppliers in general have had for many years when thinking, you know, we think about the beach, the pool, the beautiful breakfast, the magnificent dinner and the lobster and the view and all of that. We are hotel people, but we don't really think about marketing or sales, right? And this is the problem. We are shifting now and Many companies are far advanced and others are lagging behind, but it's just not there. It's not in our DNA, to put it that way. Can we take a step back now? I do want to get on to discuss that, how you're approaching that thing. I think that's probably, for me, the most fascinating, interesting question today, what's going on with distribution and hoteliers. But we take a step back and can you provide some context to when you joined Google in, was it 2011, say? Absolutely, yes. Joined Google in 2011 towards the summer after eight wonderful and beautiful years at Expedia, I originally joined as um, head of the travel vertical in Spain. So Spain is a country which uh, is really, tourism and travel is really important for us as a destination. Uh, we welcome, or we used to welcome, over 80 million clients a year. We will see what those figures are uh, now. And as a result, all of the players in the country are relatively advanced versus other players, the hotels, the airlines, and so forth. So travel as a vertical for Google has always been very important from a revenue perspective. And in Spain, being such a touristic country, even more. So I used to run a portfolio of about 50 clients. Think about the main airlines, the main hotel companies, the main rental car companies, some apartment and lodging operators, a few destination management companies, and so forth. The team of about 40, 40, 50 people between Dublin and Madrid, because we had split operation at the time. And we were selling the full catalog of Google products from AdWords to YouTube to all of the services. Then I moved on to the top accounts team, which was, uh, I was running the EMEA, the European team part of a global team that was looking after the bigger accounts, which included uh, Expedia, my former company, Booking.com, of course, uh, and a few other global players like Accor Hotels uh, and a few more. And I was part of the team that handled only this handful of accounts. So it was a much more white glove service, if you will, from a sales perspective to a very select and highly important for the company because the revenue stream that the only, you know, this handful of accounts brought to the company was really, really relevant. And the way we worked with them was very different because these were global organizations that we had to service to the different communities they had in the different regions. So Hotels.com, the headquarter was in London. Expedia, the headquarter was in the US. Agoda, the headquarter was in APAC. Booking was in the Netherlands. So many of them had multi-brands and different teams. And as a result, they needed to get a much more of a bespoke service. After that, I moved on to the travel vertical search. And that was the most fun, I would say, of my time at Google, because there was a lot going on. Those were like my two and a half, three years. So we're talking about between 2015 and 2018. Google had acquired a flight search a few years back in 2011, actually. But then we were starting to develop quite a lot the hotel ads product, which was a meta product, but then getting deployed not only in search, but also in other uh, Google properties. And during that tenure, I worked very closely with the product and eng teams, the, the product and engineering teams that were defining the go-to-market strategy. How are we going to 
engage with the travel ecosystem? How are you going to price? How should the product look like? And so forth. And after that, I decided to leave the best company in the world. Google really is an amazing company because this opportunity came across uh, to join a hotel company that was in many cases in the past. So changing the mindset I was talking about before and so forth and really leading the transformation agenda. We can talk about booking and, and what you learned from working closely with Booking and Expedia in a moment, but I'm curious about the fun that you had at Google and, and rolling out that hotel ads product. So maybe just how you saw Google's role in the ecosystem evolve since you were there. How, how would you explain that today? There's a lot of controversy and a lot of talk about this in the press, in the industry in general. So Google's mission is really to organize and make available the information in the world. And, and that's still current and that's why the company was funded and that's what still keeps the company going. If you think about travel, travel is extremely rich in terms of data and in many cases unstructured data. So on the airline world, it's probably the most structured because you have the GDSs and regulations and the cow and the different entities that govern kind of the IATAs of the world and so forth. But if you think about hotels, they're structured but less structured than airlines. If you think about destination services and excursions, that's really completely unstructured. So Google really has a lot to do on that space by bringing efficiency and, and helping suppliers better reach demand because that's exactly what Google is trying to do get supply and demand closer in a more efficient way. Many people say that Google has hidden agendas and they want to control the world. I do not think that's the case at all. Google is a great company. They're trying to do good to every industry they operate in. And in travel, they are, they're heavily invested because they can add a lot of value and they've been adding a lot of value. If you think about the OTAs, Booking.com was always heavily focused on SEM and understanding Google and working very closely with Google. And to a great extent, they built the booking holdings empire based on that. And not only because of that, but that was an important part of the recipe, I would say. So Google is trying to do that. It's trying to bring suppliers and demand as close and as efficiently as possible. I think that's the agenda. I still work very closely with them on my current gig. I'm persuaded about this. And what is your view then to the opinion that Google is looking to disintermediate the OTAs with this product? and? How would you respond to that? I don't think Google has a disintermediation agenda. Now, with that said, it is true that Google allows for those suppliers that wish to go direct to do so if they wish. But again, because Google wants to bring supply and demand as close as possible, but it doesn't mean that demand has to come through an intermediator. If demand, you know, the user wants to go direct, so be it. And Google is not going to prevent that from happening. There's a great analogy on wine. You know, for the last 20 years, I've been working in travel and I was part of an intermediator, then part of Google, and I'm now part of a supplier, which has given me a good perspective of how things are evolving. Wine, which I, I happen to love wine. The other day, I logged on the website for a winery here in Spain, which I normally drink quite a lot. And I always bought it through the retail uh, channel, the different OTAs for wine, which exist like in every other country. And then I realized that this winery was selling already direct on their website at a cheaper rate than on the distribution, electronic distribution. And they said, okay, this is interesting. Now, this is starting to happen now in other areas, which you know the dynamics of consumption are very different, but it's starting to happen. And the point is, if Google wants to bring supply and demand as close as possible, if the supply wants to go direct and talk to William Barnes or Javier Delgado individually and specifically, because these two individuals want to buy directly from this supplier, be it wine, be it hotels, be it flights, 
Google is not going to prevent that. Now, if the intermediaries in between for travel or for wine are adding value from a price perspective, from a shopping perspective, from a logistics perspective, from an insurance perspective, from wherever it is perspective, then so be it. And actually, what draws the line clearly is the transaction. Look at Google Hotel Ads, how it has evolved. Google needs someone to fulfill that transaction in all cases. If it's an intermediary, so be it. And in many cases, the intermediaries are far ahead the suppliers because they have better digital assets, better know-how, better customer service, more payment methods, you name it. If you do a search for Hotel New York, you end up on the map, you know, within Google Maps, and you see the, the Hilton, Times Square, and all the different properties. And when you click, and then you get the set of results, sometimes up to 10 results, you're going to see uh, Hilton, Booking, Expedia. For those cases, Hilton is deciding they want to participate and they want to fight for that click and fight for that demand versus uh, the intermediaries. So Google is saying, I'm bringing everyone to this auction. I'm bringing everyone to this meeting between supply and demand and let the user decide based on their preference or based on the different proposals that Hilton may have versus Booking or versus Expedia. Again, from a price, usability, or whatever perspective it is. But it's not necessarily, so Google does not want to disintermediate. Google is putting a level playing field for everyone to participate. Because actually, if you think about it, in the past, it was impossible for an independent hotel or even a bigger hotel chain to reach that particular client, so that particular demand. So I understand that Booking might be sometimes concerned about uh, Google's uh, movements or Expedia or so forth. And there's a whole wave, the uh, fair search movement that took place a few years back saying that it was unfair and so forth. But I think Google has brought a lot of fairness because in many industries, intermediation, think about insurance or banking, they've been heavily intermediated. Now, the internet, not Google, but the internet as a global infrastructure has brought a lot of democracy or kind of revisited the rules of the game and has allowed supply to meet demand in ways it wasn't possible in the past. So I don't think there's a disintermediation agenda, but it is true that those players who wish to disintermediate because of their choice, because of their choice, they might have a better playing field or more tools available than they had in the past because Google is democratizing a lot of the technology. And once again, this is my own humble opinion as Javier Delgado, not talking as a former Google executive or as a hotel executive now. What I think is interesting then is, so Google is bringing the battle to, call it hotel ads. It's, it's democratizing access to demand effectively for the supply, but it's bringing the battle really to, to one place on hotel ads. The question then becomes, can the smaller independent hotel outbid the OTA or what, you know, what is the dynamics there that even enables the smaller hotels, forget the Hiltons or the Marriott's, to actually compete on that product? The answer is yes. So, you know, the mom and dad hotel, the William Barnes hostel can participate in Google Hotel Ads if they want to. I don't want to get too technical, but you can participate via an integration partner. Just pull up a browser, put Hotel Ads integration partners, you get a list of about 80 different companies, uh, which are not Google companies. These are independent, uh, separate uh, entities that will, they do a one-to-many integration. They put one pipe with Google and they send their, you know, the hotel ads and then they resell that to the independents. It's like an agency, it, exactly, TravelClick, Mirai, you know, there, there's a lot of, this, uh, of these companies. 
So the independent hotel needs to do a contract with TravelClick or whomever in order to get listed. Now, when you're talking about the auction, then can they outbid? Well, it depends on what their pricing and distribution strategy is. They might not necessarily need to outbid from an auction perspective because there's a quality score component. I don't want to turn this into an SEM masterclass, but you know that the quality score is more important than the price you're willing to pay for that CPC, you know, the maximum CPC and so forth. So if you have the right strategy from a pricing and inventory management perspective, meaning that it's coherent and that you're willing to undercut your intermediators and you're going to keep your last room availability and you have a good website or a pretty good website that converts relatively well and you do your CPC right, uh, you do have a chance to outbid And there are some chains out there and some independents doing a great job on this and outbidding the bigger boys. So it is possible. I'm not saying it's easy, but it is certainly possible. And Google is allowing that to happen or or laying the level field and the technical infrastructures that allow that to happen. What did you learn from your time managing Booking and Expedia about why those businesses, more specifically Booking, are so good at converting or SEM and really perform on, on that channel? Both are great companies, but they're very different companies, Booking and Expedia. Let's address Booking as per your question first. Booking is, first of all, used to be, now it's evolved through time, but it used to be a lodging only. And at the time, it was a hotels only website, right? Which makes it extremely more simple to manage when you only have one single product or one single category of of products. Because you can focus, you can go much deeper. That's one very important piece. They've gone extremely far on the lodging side because. I've been tracking on their homepage, they put how many options they have. They used to call hotels, and it was about 200,000 the first time I saw that figure. Now it's over 20 million, and they call it lodging options. You have igloos, vans, boats, cabins, treetop houses, you name it. You can sleep on anything on a tent. But at the time, it was only hotels, and there's allegedly in the world half a million hotels. No one really knows, but allegedly the regulated hotels is about half a million. And these guys went far beyond that because they've been focusing on getting everything that has a bed or anywhere you can sleep on earth. And they have an army of people, you know, crawling the world, making sure they they contract absolutely everything directly. Very important because they have direct contracts in most cases. Also, then is the second pillar of their success, I would say, is uh, measurement. They measure absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. They have allegedly over 150 to 280 tests. This is something I read on the press. I'm not disclosing anything. A private here running at at every time. So they're constantly A-B testing to understand what the user likes most. How does demand, how does the clicks, you know, the eyeballs in front of the booking site, how do they interact with them? And they change based on on that behavior. And they do that very well. The website is, is pretty ugly to my liking. But again, this is just my liking. It's one of the best performing, if not the, the best performing on earth. So it's not a matter of ugly or beautiful. It's a matter of performance when you come down to marketing, right? But the colors and, and the way it's set up and so forth, you know, to me, it's not, but it, but it works. It works. And they know this. So they're not optimizing for beauty. They're optimizing for ROI and conversion, which is the way to do this in marketing. So a single product shop or single category shop, very capable team of people all over the world, constantly sourcing and managing that inventory then focusing on measurement and measuring absolutely everything, absolutely everything. And then being quite savvy and quite advanced from a technology perspective. These guys invest 
significant amounts of money on product development, on engineering. Look at their figures. Take any of their statements, and that this is public data. You see how much money they're putting in. I think that's the recipe for success that has made Booking what it is today. What would you advise young performance marketeers today in approaching SEM, given what you learned from Booking and your experience at Google and being a hotelier today? Something I'm going to talk about my own experience now. When I was about to join Google, so 2011 or late 2010, I didn't really know much about SEM. So I decided to set up a website, a simple website. I actually called a friend who owned the restaurant and said, listen, can you give me your credentials of, of the website? Do you mind if I'm, you know, I'm going to do some AdWords and run campaigns for you? It's not going to cost you anything. Just let me play around. He said, yeah, sure. So he gave me the URL, you know, the credentials and so forth. And I set up a few campaigns to learn about you know, what CPC, how does the console look like? What do you change? How do you choose your concordances for AdWords and so forth? This may sound stupid, but I learned a lot from that. I burned my fingers because one weekend I forgot to put a cap to the investment and I burned 600 euros, you know, which is, well, it didn't make me bankrupt, but it was, ouch, <laughs> what happened there? I said, okay, now you need to be careful that if, if you're not controlling these things, it can really get off hand. So you learn a myriad things by doing and suffering in your own flesh, to put it that way, what to do things. So this may sound stupid, but go to Wix or any available platform where you can create your own website or take your friend's website and start doing simple things. And then something that is extremely important and that many people are still not clear about is the concept of lifetime value and customer acquisition cost. You would be surprised. So on my current role, I am, I am the chief digital officer because that's how I joined the company. But then I was given also the CMO, the chief marketing officer function and the chief commercial. I still see many marketing officers that do not really master the simple concept of LTV, lifetime value and customer acquisition cost. It is really surprising that this is still the case today in 2020. Because the minute you understand that you have to have a lifetime value that is higher than your CAC, that your customer acquisition cost. And you master the levers that will take you there and understanding what is a CPC to convert, you know, first of all, impression, followed by click, followed by click-through rate, followed by conversion, different levels of engagement, load times of the websites. When you understand that holistically, you're able to have a discussion that is much more relevant for the marketing that you need today. And why do I say this? Because marketing has always been about creativity and media planning. If you think about the last 60, 70 years when really marketing became kind of a discipline. The Mad Men, the series, you know, it was about creativity and drinking and having great ideas and, and the pictures and the models and, and all of that. And that's really important still. But there's a whole new discipline that comes on top of that, which is as important, if not more important, which is the science. So to put it that way, the math men from mathematics, you need to, to combine the mad men with the math men. So, and that's, if I was going to start a career in marketing, I would probably complement my studies with statistics or math, something that will give me knowledge and really power to understand numbers very well. Be very keen on handling numbers and ratios and things like that. Because everyone gets allured by, you know, the creativity, which again, it's really extremely important. Don't get me wrong. Or the product design, which is a whole new discipline of turning ideas into reality and tangible things. Absolutely uh, great. Uh, but the math component and the number crunching 
and being able to master spreadsheets. It's incredibly important. And I'm still amazed to see how many people, I'm not particularly good myself, but you see many people who are complete ignorant about these concepts, which are really on which the industry is now built upon. There are many other components, but you know, having simple things like LTV, CAC in your mind, clear and fully understood will help you a lot throughout your career. And all of this is available on the web. You don't need to go to the expensive universities for this. You just type it and, you know, LTV formula, you're going to get it. There's, you know, a myriad places where you can learn about this. And you really need to have these concepts extremely well polished in your mind to really succeed. Moving on to look at what you're doing now, which I, I think is interesting. Like you said, you started the OTAs, moved, moved to Google. Now you're at the supplier side. And now you're playing the game of, you know, owning distribution or taking back distribution and, and really owning relationships with the customer. What is the biggest challenge you're facing today doing that? Well, spending most of my time is on the organizational aspects, which many of them uh, derive from, from the culture of, of the company. So I lead a team of about 2,000 people now, which is distributed in, in, across different geographies in over 25 countries. So that brings an, an important layer of, of complexity already as such to any organization. But also, we are a company that has been not very focused on technology in the past, and that today in 2020 is a problem. So I spend a lot of time enabling people to make decisions, uh, bringing some cultural aspects, bringing some basic concepts like the ones we, we talked about, you know, cost of distribution. So upon joining, I asked, what's the cost of distribution that we have on the trade versus direct? And we didn't have a clear answer. So I created a whole data office, over 20 people, some data scientists, which are looking at this specifically. And now we have everything on a dashboard and we see, you know, at the flick of the switch, what's costing us to sell through each channel. We used to talk about distribution like on and off, online and offline. This shocked me when I joined and I said, well, you know, distribution, we should be talking about distribution versus non-distribution. So B2C and B2B. And that's the cut because everyone is digital now. We are digital and every retailer is digital and every true operator is digital or they have a digital outlet. So we shouldn't be looking at the world from a online versus offline because that's nonsense. This is still, this is, a, you know, 18 months ago. And I was shocked by this. And there are many, many organizations that are still there or even at a worst uh, point in time. With all due respect, we need to shift and change quickly. And that's where I'm spending most of my time. I'm now looking at things direct versus non-direct. And both are great. We have very strong partnerships with the trade. And we plan to, to keep those, of course. We forced them through decades of working together. One of the things that caught my attention was Thomas Cook, you know, the, the famous Thomas Cook, the first tour operator in the world from the 19th century, you know, over 160, 70 years in the industry that went down the drain uh, last September. They were an important partner for us and we feel very sorry for their demise, but these proved that we needed to move faster because many companies, ours and many others are still extremely reliant on distribution and there's nothing wrong with distribution as long as it's good, healthy distribution that will stay alive, right? We live in a world, especially in the hotel industry, where we're in a constant fight against the clock. Our product is the most perishable inventory that you may have, more than food or more than, than seafood even. Because at midnight, our inventory is lost and you cannot stock an unsold room night. It's gone forever. You can go back in time and sell it again. So this mind shift of relying on partners to sell is great and it needs to be controlled and properly managed. So coming back to the measurement, that's an area where I'm spending a lot of time understanding 
how profitable it is to sell this room through this channel. Is it possible to sell the same room through another channel or not? Think about uh, Cape Verde, you know, a small archipelago. It's an African country where we operate a hotel. Would it be possible to sell 100% online for that hotel? Well, certainly not, or it would be stupid to try to do so. And we have a beautiful property in Plaza Catalunya in the heart of Barcelona, you know, or the Apple stories in our hotel. Just you should get a sense on how centric it is. Would it be possible to sell 100% direct online in that hotel? Well, maybe yes. Would it be wise to do so? Probably not, because you need to find the right balance, you know, because obviously an operator that wants to sell Barcelona, you might ask him to sell more of Cape Verde, and you need to find the right balance. So the point is, you need to look at the world in terms of who can sell more, measure, understand what the impact is going to be on the, on the GOP, and build the teams around that strategy that you want to accomplish, which needs to be in accordance to what the world is asking for not what your product is like. And that's another aspect that I'm spending a lot of time changing the mindset because our product is beautiful, our product is the best. So the product-based marketing, which is good, is one of the fundamental piece of marketing. But you need to think about the consumer much more is what does this individual want and how are we going to engage with this audience to give them what they need instead of convincing them to buy what we have, right? Which is a, a shift in mentality. So those are the things that keep me quite busy these days, apart from the virus, which has destroyed our business completely.